Hey, happy Sunday. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want you to think for just a second while you're turning in your Bible to John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4, if you have a Bible, uh, open it up. And uh, if you have a phone, I want you to look up John chapter 4. And while you're doing that, I would love for you uh, to think about what you are hungry for right now. So, uh, I mean, in just a few minutes, like an hour and a half, I'll be finished. And <laughs> then we'll get to go to lunch. You'll be hungry. Uh, what are you going to be hungry for? So just think about it for, for just a second. John chapter 4. Now, here's what I can guess. I, I bet if we went person by person all the way through, uh, we would get some of the same genres, but uh, different specifics, uh, a different restaurant. Uh, so maybe a few of us said a hamburger, but we said a hamburger from a different uh, a spot because there's lots of different diverse types of foods and appetites. Uh, how many of you like mustard? Uh, yeah, so there's something wrong with you guys. Uh, so we have a prayer time at the end. I would love for all of you who just raised your hand to come forward. Your life is not aligned with the will of God. If you wanted to torture me, uh, I need you to take me to Whataburger and just, uh, just take a bunch of their mustard and just rub it all over my skin. I would rather you take my toenails off than to touch their mustard. I mean, you shouldn't look at mustard and have texture. That just is just gross and it does there. It really bothers me. Uh, in fact, let's just pray about it right now. Maybe those people who bought Whataburger can change their mustard, uh, you know. Anyway, but I bet some of you uh, like their mustard. Uh, the, the point I'm making is that we like lots of different foods, and uh, that's a great thing. We live in a very diverse city like Houston, so you can get really lots of, uh, of different types of food. But my goal when we leave today is that we would be hungry uh, for just one food, and it would be the food that Jesus talks about in John chapter 4. A little reminder from last week, in case any of you weren't here, Jesus has gone through Samaria, which was a region in between northern Israel and southern Israel, and, and he's gone through there, and he's met a woman at a well. Uh, he talks to her. That really wasn't something that he was supposed to do, uh, but he does, and he has this amazing conversation with her. It's intense, and it's personal. He asks about her marital history, and that's a pretty sore subject for her, but at the end, she is convinced that he is the Messiah, or I say convinced. She wonders about it, but she acts convinced in verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asks, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor." 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Verse 27 Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? This is a review from last week. As I mentioned, Samaria is in between northern Israel. That's where Jesus was from. He was from Nazareth. He made his home base once his ministry started in Capernaum, which was also in northern Israel. Jerusalem was in southern Israel. And so they would constantly be making these trips from north to south, south to north, but in the middle was Samaria, and they did not associate with the Samaritans. There were lots of history and reasons why they didn't, but the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were so uh, anti Samaria that if they needed to go from north to south or south to north, they would actually walk all the way around Samaria. It would be like if you needed to go to Oklahoma today, but you were so disgusted by people who live in Dallas, which may be the right instinct, uh, that you went east instead of north, got to Louisiana, drove all the way up through Louisiana and Arkansas, and then into Oklahoma. That's what the Israelites would do if they needed to travel from north to south, because they just had all this animosity from uh, the Samaritans and back to the Samaritans. But Jesus said, uh, I have to go through Samaria. Now, he didn't really have to go through Samaria because he was the son of God. He could do whatever he wants, which leaves us with two options. Option number one, he had to go through Samaria because he had something on his calendar uh, back in northern in Israel, he was in Jerusalem, uh, that he couldn't take the extra couple of days to walk all the way around. Or it could have been more likely that he had to go through Samaria because of the mission that God sent him uh, to do. And so he went the harder route because that was the will of God. Regardless, he sits down at a well because the scripture says that he's tired. And his disciples go to the nearest village to get some food for themselves and for him. While he's sitting there, a woman comes and sits down. Now, what a normal Jewish man would have done when she arrived was he would have gotten up and left, or he would just have ignored her. But what we see Jesus doing is actually engaging her. He's just nicer than she expected him to be. He reached across the divide. Now, that divide was not something that he created, and it wasn't something that the woman created. They inherited those divides. And we think about the people that our society divides us from, uh, racial divides, economic divides, uh, type of work divides, white collar, blue collar, uh, people from this country or that country, right? Our society gives us divisions. And for most of us, we inherited those. Uh, we didn't ask for those. We just grew up in a society that where uh, people are divided. And we can do what most normal people would do, which is uh, to perpetuate those divides either by uh, action, getting up and leaving, or just by silence, uh, saying nothing, ignoring those people, going about our lives just like those people don't exist. And we perpetuate those divides. But as followers of Jesus, we need to follow him across those divides. And it's a really simple first step. Just be nicer than anyone expects you to be. Just be more kind, be more warm, be more proactive. We constantly need to be asking ourselves a question when it comes to people who are on the other side, whatever it is, the other side politically, the other side relate racially, the other side economically. Is this a person that God sent Jesus for? Uh, Does the cross of Jesus 
mean anything for this person? And if the answer is yes, then we have a responsibility. I want to encourage you to take that lens, that question. Does the cross of Jesus have any role to play in this person's life? And then when you get home today, I want you to read the news. And when you read the news with that lens, suddenly it's different. Because now you and I are taking our responsibility as Christians, as followers of Christ, higher than any other allegiance. So we don't simply read the news as Americans. We don't read the news as Houstonians. We first read the news as Christians, followers of Jesus, asking ourselves, this news that I'm reading about, the people involved, did God send Jesus for them? And if the answer is yes, then I'm responsible. So when we read the news about what's happening on the border, we first read it as followers of Christ. I don't know what to do. I don't know if there's any role to play, but I know that Jesus died for the people there. I know that Jesus died for the parts of town here in Houston that I never go to. I don't know anyone who lives there, but it's not just news. It's something that's happening in my life to me because Jesus cares for them. Jesus died for them. God sent Jesus into the world for them, and therefore I have some level of, of responsibility and care. Jesus reached across this divide. He literally reached across the border. He didn't have to do that. Not technically speaking, but the mission that God had given him said, this is what I have to do with my life. And it changed her life forever. But the disciples, they come up in the middle of this conversation. You ever walk into an intense conversation that you didn't really mean to walk into? It's awkward, isn't it? You don't know whether to stand there uh, and just pretend that it's not awkward or to leave, which then makes it even more awkward. That's what is happening with the disciples. Uh, Remember, Jesus has just asked her about her marital history. I mean, just try that on later today, not at church, but later on, just ask people, hey, how many times you've been married, right? It's going to be weird. So they walk into this conversation and uh, they have two gut instincts. Uh, Number one, they know that he's doing something odd. Uh, Why is he talking to her? That's what they ask. Because they're normal Jewish men. They would have done what Jesus didn't do. They would have gotten up when she came to the well. Or they would have just ignored her while she was there. So they're wondering why is Jesus engaging her in this level of conversation. But their other gut instinct is... We probably shouldn't say anything. They've been with Jesus enough to know they are wrong and he is right. They don't understand why they're wrong. They just assume that they are wrong, which is always a good instinct when reading the scripture. I am wrong. God's word is right. I need to figure out why it's right and then how I can do it. So they don't say anything, even though they have these questions. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way to him. Now remember, Jesus has touched a sore spot in her. Now we don't know her backstory. Uh, The fact that she's been married five times and is with somebody who is not currently her spouse, we don't know if if she's just not good at marriage. Uh, We don't know if there was abuse in her situation. In her culture, the men had all of the power. And so it's not as simple as she could have just left whenever she wanted. But whatever reason, if she's totally innocent, totally guilty, or like most of us, some mix of the two, 
it's a sore spot for her because she immediately tries to change the subject whenever Jesus brings it up. So he's just ripped off this bandage of something that probably she's wanted to keep covered. The scripture says that she comes to the well in the middle of the day. Bible historians tell us that most likely the best time to go and get water at the well was early in the morning and later in the day when it wasn't quite so hot. So my guess is that she's come at that time for a specific reason because she thinks no one is going to be there. But she thinks Jesus may be the Messiah, so she goes back into town and tells people. She had to overcome her, what I'm guessing was a humongous amount of shame. But that was fine for her because she was convinced this really may be the Messiah. It was too important for her to be insecure. It was too important of a possibility for her to worry about self-protection. And if, I'm guessing most of us believe that Jesus is the Messiah or Savior that God has sent us in, into the world to save us from our sins, if we really believe that, then self-protection cannot be at the top of our list. Uh, worrying about looking foolish, wor- worrying about uh, bringing up religion at work or in conversation, th- this is too important for us to be so self-important. What are people going to think about me? I don't want to make it weird. I don't want to bother them. For her, this was too important of a message for her to be insecure. It has to be too important of a message for us to be insecure. Remember what Jesus said at another point? He said, if you don't, uh, if you love your father and mother more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. So think about your mom and dad right now and think, just demote them. I mean, we just passed Father's Day. Fathers are easy to demote, but Mother's Day is just a few months into our rearview mirror. You think about, you know, demoting your mom. We're leaving uh, on vacation tomorrow to go and visit my folks back in Missouri. I mean, imagine walking into the door uh, at my parents' house. I haven't seen them in a couple of months and just being like, hey, mom, I just want you to know, at best, you're like fifth place in my life. (laughs) At best. But Jesus says, if, if you don't love me more than you love your mom and dad, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Now, that may be easy for you because maybe you don't have a strong relationship with your folks. But then he takes it a step further, almost, almost inappropriately further, and says, if you don't love me more than you love son or daughter, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Now, think about those sweet kids that you have. I mean, almost everything we do in Tomball, Texas, revolves around our kids. Jesus says, if you love them, if you are more aligned with them than you are aligned with me, don't even bother pretending that you are a disciple of mine. So if he says that about moms and dads and sons and daughters, think how low on his list of priorities self-protection would be. The woman overcame any insecurity she had because the truth was too important. And people listened. It says they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Verse 31, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Uh, the disciples not always winning in life. Uh, 
they go into town. Uh, Jesus is hungry. The, the, earlier it says that he sat down at the well, tired as he was. So they go in to get him food, probably get food for themselves. Uh, they, they march themselves back out to the well where they last left him. And they say, here, we brought you food. And he says, I don't want it. Now, if you have kids, especially if you have little kids, you m- know kind of the that they must have felt like, you know, I went to Chick-fil-A to buy you this food. Chick-fil-A is not free. You have loved chicken nuggets every day of your life until right now you're telling me that you don't like them anymore. Fine, go and get a job and buy your own food, right? (laughs) His disciples have to be feeling a measure of that. We went in there, we got you food. You told us you were tired, you looked tired, and now you're saying that you don't want to eat it. And they naturally ask themselves the question, did someone else bring him food? Uh, This is the fourth time in a row in the Gospel of John that someone has misunderstood him. In the temple, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. People thought he was actually talking about the building. He was talking about himself. Uh, Then he meets Nicodemus in the middle of the night. Jesus talks about new birth. He thinks it's about being born again and how can you go back into your mother's womb? Nicodemus misunderstands. Last week, uh, it was the Samaritan woman. Jesus was talking about living water and she thinks that he's talking about water that if she drinks it, she'll never get thirsty again. And here the disciples think he's actually talking about food, but he's not, but he does explain. Verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. If you've been around church for a while, you may have heard somebody say, uh, this is my life verse. It's, it's the verse they usually get tattooed on themselves somewhere. If you don't have a Bible verse tattoo, I'd like to recommend uh, John chapter four, verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Because if you can obey that one verse, you probably can figure out the rest of it. Because look at what it says. My food, the thing that fills me up, is to do the will of God. He says, the thing that I am hungry for in this world is doing God's will and finishing the work that he sent me to do. So what I want to ask me, and I want to ask you today, is his will will, what you are most hungry for? Or are there lesser hungers that you are more hungry for right now? The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 63, Jesus may have actually had this psalm in mind. No doubt he probably had this one memorized. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. The the gut check for most of us is, is my faith sound anything remotely close to Psalm 63? 
Are any of these words, words I would use to describe my own personal relationship with God through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus? Earnestly I seek you. My whole being longs for you. I have beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. In your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. When when I wake up in the middle of the night, my first thought is not that thing that I'm anxious about. It's not what I have to do tomorrow. It's not that person that I'm mad at. I think about God. I've been so hungry for God all day long that my natural instinct, as soon as I awake, is Him. I don't know you. I mean, I know some of you. Uh, You don't know me. Uh, More days in my life my faith does not look like Psalm 63 than does. I've been to a lot of churches. I, I can't say that most of the churches that I've been to do I leave thinking, well, I don't know if those people are any good, but I know that they are hungry for God. Do any of these words look remotely close to your faith. You might think, well, I got a lot going on. See if you got this going on. Verse nine, those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silent. So the psalmist says, I got people who are lying about me. I got people who are wanting to kill me. So if you don't have anybody who wants to kill you this week, literally, not metaphorically, but literally, then we don't have any excuse to be hungry for God. The psalmist is not saying, well, I would be hungry for God, but I'm running these kids all over the place. I would be hungry for God, but I got to go to work. My boss is super demanding. I would be hungry for God, but I'm doing this this summer. I just got a lot going on and I'm really tired and I need like a sabbatical from my life. The psalmist has people who are literally trying to end his life and he says, that's fine because you know what's better than existing? The loving kindness of God. Jesus says, my food, the thing that fills me up is to do the will of God and to finish the work that he sent me to do. Verse 35, don't you have a saying, still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. He brings up some kind of proverb. Bible scholars don't know exactly what the proverb was, but it's probably something similar to our apple a day keeps the doctor away. And it had something to do with the harvest. And he says, I want you to look out and I want you to see the harvest. Now, it could be that when he tells them to look up, he sees all those Samaritans coming with the woman back to him. Now, the the disciples and and the rest of the Jewish people, they believed in a harvest, a a spiritual harvest. 
But they kind of had a story that they had been telling themselves that God would send the Messiah, the Savior, that the prophets had prophesied about. The Messiah would become king in Jerusalem, uh, remove any kind of foreign government. And at this time, it was the Roman Empire. And once that happened, they kind of order themselves as they did in the days of Old Testament. And then God's presence would come, would refill the temple. It wouldn't just be a building where sacrifices would happen. The glory of God, the cloud of God, the fire of God would literally be in the temple. And from that blessing in Jerusalem, there would radiate out into the rest of the world a harvest of eternal life. They believed that, but they believed it was sometime in the future. The disciples thought maybe Jesus was the Messiah who was going to become king and all then those things would happen. But in their mind, the harvest was something out there. And Jesus is saying to them now, no, look, 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 open your eyes. The harvest is now. It's like when you go to the, the, the eye doctor and they they say, uh, which one is better? This one or that one? Which one's clear? This one or that one? This is what Jesus is doing for the disciples. Look, look, put these lenses on. There's the harvest. It's here. It's, it's right now. Verse 36, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. So, so this, he says the stakes are high. The harvest isn't about getting people to join our spiritual club. It's not about getting them to see the world the way that we see the world. The, the harvest is about eternal life through Jesus the Savior, the, the Messiah. So we, sh- we shouldn't be embarrassed about going out and, and telling people Hey, have you heard this good news that God's Savior is in the world? Because we're not trying to, to just get them to join us. We're, we're trying to help align their lives for the purpose that God has created them. They are eternal beings made in the image of God. God sent Jesus into the world for them. We're just connecting the dots for them. And we should be bold about it. And we should be sowing and reaping. Everywhere we're going, we're sowing this seed. That leads to the harvest. It's God who brings the growth. We can't control anybody. Amen? But we can sow and we can reap. And Jesus says, look, everywhere you go, there is a harvest. Most of us fluctuate between thinking everyone that we know already knows this story. I mean, we're in Houston. Somebody's, almost everybody's been to church before. They know the story of Jesus. On one side, we think everybody already knows, but then we'll take the opposite side and say, well, even if I did go and tell somebody, nobody would want to believe. It would be so weird and awkward and they'd, they'd reject me, right? But Jesus says that's, that's actually wrong. The harvest is, is right. In another place, he said it's the workers that are the problem. There's plenty of harvest. There are just very few people who want to go out there into the harvest field. So we have to take on this mindset of sowing and reaping everywhere that I go. I'm sowing seed. Uh, I'm reaping. And we don't know what happens after we sow the seed. When I was just first born, the cutest little baby that you've ever seen. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records, actually. My picture is in there. And one of the first things that my grandma, grandmother said uh, when she saw me was, hey, there's my little preacher, which totally makes sense now. Uh, but then in 1981, when I was born, on the very first day of the year, January 1st, mark it down so you can give me a present, um, 
She had no reason to say that. Uh, my dad is a mechanic. My mom was working at a travel agency at the time. My grandparents had regular job. No one we knew in any of our family uh, was a pastor, a minister of any kind. To my knowledge, uh, we've never had a high regard in our family for people who do that. So she really didn't have any reason for saying that. But, but she did, and, and she sowed a little seed. And then she manipulated me all the days of my life until I did this. <laughs> no, you know, what's interesting is she didn't. I, I didn't ever, I ever hear, hear that story actually until I, I became a minister. Right? But she sowed a seed and, and over time, God brought it to fruition. Um, last Thursday, I was eating uh, at a restaurant across the street from the church and, and I go there a lot and meet people there a lot. And so I know most of the waiters and waitresses, at least they're friendly with them, but there was a, a new one and she had never been my waitress before. And so in the conversation, I've been thinking about this, just sowing seed, seed that God brings growth to. And, and you know, you don't want to say, hey, sit down here and, you know, be bad at your job so I can tell you about Jesus. That's, that's weird. And so I just said, hey, I work across the street. We've never met before. I'm in here a lot. I work across the street at this church. And that just that, that's the seed, just the seed. Right? Because there's harvest in that, that restaurant. I can't see it. But Jesus said, look, the fields are ripe with harvest. Everywhere you go. Last night, I took my three-year-old daughter to a birthday party at one of those indoor jump type places. And Looking around, I mean, hundreds of parents uh, screaming at their kids, their kids screaming back at them. And somewhere in here is a harvest. There, there are seeds to be sown in here. I just need to be able to look. We are sowers and we are reapers. And when we are hungry for the will of God, it just comes naturally then to finish the work that God had sent Jesus to do. Verse 37, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. He's probably talking about John the Baptist who we've been introduced to uh, just a few uh, chapters before. John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus. God sent him to just blaze the trail a little bit, prepare people's hearts and minds so that when Jesus began to do his ministry, people were ready. And John sowed seeds. Uh, he did not see the harvest. He, he actually sowed seeds that resulted in him being in prison and then him losing his life. But out there in the wilderness, just sowing his seeds, and Jesus tells the disciples, you guys are gonna reap a harvest of seed you didn't sow. John sowed that seed, but it's the sower and the reaper being glad together. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Last week, Jesus talks to her about living water that flows eternal life. And now we're seeing in the words of one scholar, that living water has turned into an overflowing fountain and other people are now coming. Many people believed in Jesus because of her testimony. When we are hungry for God, God will fill us. And when he fills us, he feeds other people. That eternal life does flow in us like a spring. 
and it will refresh other people. And she says to the people, he told me everything I ever did, but she doesn't stop there. She brings them back to Jesus. Earlier it said that she left her jar there. This jar wasn't filled with Twinkies, you know, just like, uh, hey, they're nice and they taste good, but I don't really need it. There was, there was water in this jar and she needed water to live. Whether she believed in Jesus or not, she still needed water to live. But she left her jar, which was a sign that she was coming back for it. So regardless of whether people listened to her back in the village, she was coming back out to spend more time with Jesus, which is a good lesson for us. I remember at my aunt's house when we would go there, she had a little plaque right next to her doorbell that said uh, a quote from uh, the, the book of Joshua, as for me and my house, uh, we will serve the Lord. Uh, that's what this woman is saying. I don't know if any of these people back in the village are going to listen to me, but I'm saying right now I am going back. I left my jar of water there. And so she does the, the, the full ministry that is required, right? She, she went and told, uh, but she also said, come and see. Go and tell, come and see. Earlier, uh, Jesus said to a couple of would-be disciples, come and see in John chapter one. Come and see for yourself. When I graduated from high school, I was the very definition of a zeal for Christ without knowledge. I mean, it was really unbelievable. I'm also in the Guinness Book of World Records for that. At my high school, the valedictorian didn't speak at graduation. People tried out and you know, they took three or four uh, different graduation speakers. And so I tried out because I just wanted to just slip in something about Jesus. I mean, they told you not to do that, but uh, zeal without knowledge, I was going to do it anyway. And so at graduation, I got up, I did a speech that no one will ever remember. But at the, the, very, the very end, just one little line uh, about my faith in Christ and uh, just, a, just a challenge to the people who were there. I go back on and forth about whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. But regardless, after graduation was over, uh, one of my friends came, came up and this friend, and his name was Nate. Uh, Nate, I had known since we were probably 12 years old, and I invited him to church a few times. He was not a follower of Christ and really knew very little about uh, faith. He had come to church with me a few times, but it was more kind of just, you know, uh, random, uh, fun type stuff. But if you had asked me, uh, who uh, do you want to come to Christ's kingdom the most, I would have said him. And so he comes up after graduation. He says, hey, that thing that you said about Jesus, I want to know more about that. That's what he said right after graduation. You know what I said? Awesome. That was it. I went and told. But I didn't say, come and see. I didn't say, hey, that's great. Let's, let's read the Gospel of John together. Talk about it that's great, why, why don't you read this book and I'll read it and we'll read it together. I didn't say, well, hey, come to church with me this Sunday. I just said, awesome. Going and telling is important. That Facebook post is important. God can use it. But we have to make the space in our lives to say, come and see with me. It should be the privilege of every follower of Jesus to walk other people into his kingdom. That shouldn't be something that's just left for ministers. You know, we have gotten into this bad habit of American Christianity that the church does the ministry and the people support it. Hey, we will think of good ideas and we just need you to give. 
we will think of some amazing strategies and we need you to show up. The truth of the scripture is you should be doing the work of ministry and the church exists to support you. So the next time you and I go and have lunch, and hopefully Tyler will be our waitress that day, you shouldn't ask me about what's going on at the church. I should ask you, what's going on with your ministry? What's going on in your life? How can I help you lead other people into Jesus' kingdom? How can we together make sure that we are hungry for the right things? It should have been when you and I committed our lives to Christ, whether we were very young or it's more recent. Somebody immediately should have said to us, now that you are a follower of Jesus, you make a list of all the people that you love and let's go and get them. And within 24 hours, let's make sure that they know that you've made this commitment and they can make this commitment to Christ as well. In other parts of the world, some places where it's a little bit more challenging to be a follower of Jesus, this is what local pastors and missionaries do. When somebody places their faith in Jesus, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, they go and get their family. This is what was happening in the book of Acts. Remember the Philippian jailer, Acts chapter 16, uh, almost lost his life because he thought Paul and Silas had escaped from prison, but they hadn't. And they lead him to Christ right there. And then he immediately says, come to my house and tell my family. And the scripture says that his entire household came to faith. That's what somebody should have done with us, but they didn't, at least not most of us. And now our best hope is they might indirectly see that we like Jesus and go to church pretty consistently. And the Samaritan woman embodies what Jesus is teaching the disciples. The harvest is ripe. Go and sow seed and reap harvest. And and then they end up saying to her, we did believe because of your testimony. But now in verse 42 We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So, do you believe that Jesus is the savior of the world? If the answer is yes, are you hungry? Am I hungry for the will of God? And if the answer is, mm, that's okay. God, will you make me hungry for the right thing? I have found that that is a prayer he will answer as often as I will pray it. And will I finish the work? Let's pray.